So now we're forging ahead to a case and the, the, the great Pam Krishner is going to present this and we're going to discuss the limitations and impact of plant-based diets on potassium-restricted diets preventing hyperkalemia. Pam. Thank you, George, and thank you, Biff. Good, it, very interesting information. So we're going to start, uh, first of all, with Jan. He's a 62-year-old patient with well-controlled type 2 diabetes, and I'm going to tear this apart a little bit. I'm, we're talking about the fact that her diabetes is well-controlled, but recognizing that when somebody does come in with DK to the hospital, one of the treatments that we talk about, obviously, <coughs> is giving them insulin. And so we shift the potassium from extracellular to intracellular by giving them that uh, insulin. So I want to remind you that the hyperglycemia is also related to uh, hyperkalemia. She has hypertension, HEFREF, CKD3B, and George stole my thunder with persistently elevated potassium of 5.6. And the reason I said persistently elevated was twofold. First of all, I love the, I'm going to reiterate what George said, because I think it's so important, is it's not only that the potassium is 5.6, that that doesn't freak me out. What really makes me realize, would, would freak me out is if her potassium was uh, 4, five and then goes up to 5.6 and state starts going up to six. Now I'm starting to get really worried because of that escalation. S similarly, going back to what Biff said, I have seen many clinicians do nothing with a potassium of 5.5, 5.4 because of the fact that they go, it's just the blood draw and it must be that the, the specimen is hemolyzed, but I'm glad that you brought that up, the plasma versus the um, venous serum because if you have the serum, it's gonna be a higher level. So now we move into what she's going, what's going on with her. It's been persistent, the clinician's been playing, playing around, has repeated it, and the lisinopril is 40 milligram, maximum tolerated dose. She's doing well, her, her HEFREF is stable, but the clinician is starting to think, gosh, at some point I might wanna put an MRA, I may wanna do a, um, I might wanna add Venerino, and I'm starting to get, realizing that she's only on three of the four pillars. She's on an SGLT2 inhibitor and hydrochlorothiazide, 25 milligrams a day. Her SGLG2 inhibitor, remember, can help you with that hyperkalemia. Hyperkalemia can help you with her hyperkalemia. She's on a beta blocker. I don't <coughs> tell you what dose her beta blocker is, but let's assume that she's on a dose of beta blocker that is allowing her to work up to being eventually on four pillars. What, as Biff mentioned, she had her non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug stopped, which is no easy task in a woman of 62 who has arthritic symptoms. And as you had mentioned, Biff, there are other medications that can contribute to it. But what you did mention were herbs. And I, as a primary care clinician, have my patients brown bag everything into my office. So every single supplement they have. And one thing I've learned from that is people take supplements that have a lot of potassium in them because potassium is so healthy. And in a patient who has chronic kidney disease, you might say they could get away with, a, if they have mild CKD and their potassium runs okay, three to four grams a day. But if you're talking about a person who has hyperkalemia, who has a problem, you want to keep it, their diet to be somewhere between two to three grams a day. So here we want to pay attention to those herbs and 
One of the most popular ones that many clinicians don't even know about is noni juice. There's another one called coffee enemas. Where people come up with this stuff, I only work here. But let's go through the review of systems. She has no cardiac or skeletal complaints. And again, George stole my thunder because he said, by the time these people come in and have cardiac and skeletal complaints, we all know that potassium is above six. It's probably leading to seven really quickly. So it is something that I do teach my patients about because I want it to be on their radar. She has periodic constipation. Hmm, that's something I want to pay attention to because constipation in our diet is a common side effect of that diet, which we call the SAD, SAD diet, which is the standard American diet. And that SAD, standard American diet, does not have enough fiber, not fruits, enough vegetables in it. And it might be an issue when we're talking about some of the medications that might help Jan with her hyperkalemia. Vital signs are stable. You'll notice I don't have an EKG on here. Some of the internists and family physicians may be concerned. Why doesn't she have an EKG? By the time she has changes in her EKG, her potassium is going to be significantly elevated. She's probably going to get that in an ER. So in dietary history, she's seen a renal certified diabetes education specialist. I want to reiterate that because let's look at Jan a second. She has heart failure. She has CKD. She has diabetes. And she has hypertension. And let's add to it her hyperkalemia. Do you have the hour to two hours to sit with her and go through the details of what would be affecting that renal kidney diet in a patient who loves salad and be able to help her through that? I doubt it. So I would urge you to use the covered benefit, which is a certified diabetes education specialist, not a holistic nutritionist, but somebody who really understands this, these diets more clearly. We've also advised Jan to stop salt substitutes, a hidden cause, and very often the patient thinks they're doing the right thing and is a very common cause of hyperkalemia in a patient who has chronic kidney disease that is in the higher stages. She does use Mrs. Dash. I'm not gonna stop Mrs. Dash because Mrs. Dash is an herbal supplement and doesn't have the salt substitutes. So let's reiterate what was mentioned earlier by Biff. GFR is a greater determinant of hyperkalemia than the risk of than albinuria. Even though you need both of them to make the diagnosis of chronic kidney disease, you want to pay attention to that eGFR. Diabetic nephropathies associated with that higher odds ratio for seropotassium increases greater than five when compared with other causes of kidney disease. Long-acting ACEs. ACE inhibitors and the presence of heart failure, definitely risk factors for hyperkalemia. There is less of a risk with ARBs, but not a tremendously risk, less risk. Being older than the age of 70, which was mentioned, <clears throat> BUN greater than 25, also independent risk factors. And I'm glad Biff mentioned the fact of atherosclerosis. So, so often overlooked that peripheral vascular disease and coronary artery disease also are risk factors for hyperkalemia. So let's go back to Jan. Doctor, why did this happen to me? I just love salad. Well, if you think about it, potassium is generally stored in the fluid inside of the cells. But when there's too much glucose, as I said, that blood sugar is too high. The potassium now moves outside of the cell and raises potassium levels of the blood. This is going to be something you can explain to Jan. It's not beyond the level of her understanding, but it's going to be important to you to understand why it may be important to how we combine foods that are considered very high potassium foods, how we combine them and may be able to push that potassium inside the cell. 
based on what their carbohydrate content is. So for example, if you were to have a patient eat um, avocado, an avocado, if you have a third of an avocado, which most people have much more than a third of a medium avocado, that would have around four carbs in it. It have like three grams of fiber, not a very high carb food, and it would have 250 milligrams of potassium. So if Jan just eats that half an avocado, let's say she goes all whole, whole heart, she wants to have that half an avocado, it's gonna have a different effect on her system than if she has it with a piece of whole wheat bread that has a higher carb content and then may have her have a little more insulin that might help push that inside the cell. So she may be actually doing herself a better favor having a piece of avocado toast as long as it's not too much. Now, normal potassium balance is maintained primarily by the kidneys. And as Biff said, the patient usually does good unless they lose more than 50% of their function. And re, you, I'm not gonna reiterate what Biff said about the presence of CKD with the increased aldosterone levels because he spent a good share of time talking about that. But let's go a little bit into the treatment algorithm. And this is from the Cadigo organization. And if you look at the treatment algorithm in terms of initiating an ACE or an ARB, you'll see here that they recommend monitoring serum creatinine and potassium within two to four weeks of starting or changing doses. Now I can't see the audience here, but I'm gonna guess that most of you are not checking the serum potassium and creatinine within two to four weeks of starting or changing the dose, but that is the recommendation. If the patient's normal kalemic after that two to four week check, and they have less than a 30% increase in creatinine, you can then increase the dose of the ACE or ARB and continue on getting to that maximum tolerated dose. When would you reduce that dose? in that patient who has normal kalemia, well, you would reduce it if that patient has symptomatic hypotension or starts having elevated, elevated potassium, or if the patient has an EGFR of less than 15 and starts having uremic symptoms. So let's move on to the hyperkalemia, which would require you to look at concurrent medications, moderate her potassium intake, and consider diuretics, sodium bicarbs, or the, the GI, cation exchangers, which we'll talk a little bit more about. What if they have more than a 30% increase in creatinine? Well, you want to make sure you want to review for causes of AKI. You want to correct volume depletion. So now we've talked about switching from extracellular to intracellular department. We're talking a little bit about increasing fluid so that you can have more renal excretion. And next we'll talk about GI loss with the cations exchanges to get rid of some of that potassium. And then you might want to look again at the medications and of course, consider renal artery stenosis. And if either those are not good enough, that's when you're going to talk about reducing the dose or stopping the ACE or ARB as a last resort. That should not be the first thing in your armamentarium. What we can tell you about nutrition intake that you can share with your patient is you want to encourage a varied diet with vegetables, fruits, whole grains, fibers, legumes, plant-based proteins. But be careful because many of you know that meat is a high source of, high source of potassium. And maybe you forgot about these plant-based proteins that are high in pea-based. They're really high in potassium. So I would be telling Jan to stay away from them. Nuts, also very interesting. Peanuts are the safest. You could probably eat around 38, 40 peanuts at a time, and you're not going to have more than 200 <laughs> milligrams of potassium. And more than 200 milligrams of potassium is considered a more, is a high potassium food. 
But if you're talking about walnuts, you're really down to seven halves. So it does matter the type of nuts that you have, which is why you want to have help from a specialist. So you're going to reduce the intake of processed meats, very high in potassium, refined carbohydrates. She does have diabetes and sweetened beverages. And I would include Kool-Aid in that. And then you're going to aim to having a 1 to 1.2 gram protein per kilogram per day diet if a patient's treated with hemodialysis. But remember that we don't want to totally eliminate potassium um, protein in our patients who have some chronic kidney disease because we want protein to be a part of their being able to build muscle and to not have a um, continuous loss of um, their muscle mass. But no matter what you do, you're gonna have shared decision-making with Jan, which is gonna be helped by having a registered dietitian and diabetes educator on your side. And if you can't refer because you don't have that covered in your clinical practice, that's where you could use your friendly nephrologist or endocrinologist and use them as a source to get access to their certified diabetes educators. So Jan says, how do I cut down on my potassium doctor? First Jan, read the food label. I bet that people on this call don't even realize that the food label tells you about how much potassium is in the product. Now, some of them can be pretty tricky. They only give you the percentage of daily potassium recommended. <clears throat> you have to remember that, that we are pushing a high potassium diet at around 4,500 milligrams in a patient who has normal kidney function. But most of them will give it to you in milligrams of potassium. So tell your patient, read that food label. Stay away from the higher potassium foods but don't stop those high potassium foods. Use them in moderation. Drain and rinse canned everything. Learn to leach or soak raw or frozen vegetables for at least two hours in water before soak cooking. But if your patient's a working person, then you want that patient, they may wanna use the two boil technique where they boil those vegetables in around five times the amount of water for 15 minutes, let it cool down and then boil it again for 15 minutes to get rid of that extra potassium. And remember that when potassium-rich foods are combined with carbohydrates, the insulin is released and pushes the potassium into cells and the food may be better tolerated. Animal products, don't forget, are high in potassium, but not carbohydrates and could lead to that higher plasma concentration following consumption. So here is a summary that comes from up to date. And what this summary is showing you is data from 1998, and New England Journal of Medicine showing foods with high levels of potassium and low levels of potassium. Now you may say it's 2022 and she's showing us data from 1998. Well, did you know that the potassium diet came from way before that? It came from the 50s, way before we knew the amount of protein, carbohydrates, <coughs> fiber, and how important all of these nutrients are in a healthy DASH and Mediterranean diet. So we have to take this with a grain of salt when we're advising patients to be on a low potassium diet. And as Biff mentioned, this has consequences that we may not have even realized and that would not be considered totally safe to be evaluating at this point. So let's look at some of the highest potassium foods. High dried figs, molasses, seaweed, very high. We talked a little bit about nuts, avocados by themselves, lima beans, spinach, top of the list in terms of vegetables. But notice what's underneath it, tomatoes. And many of your patients may just say, well, I'm just gonna use tomato paste. They don't even get the fiber benefit often of that tomato, but they're getting the potassium with it. If we talk about fruits, cantaloupe, high source of potassium, 
And if you look at bananas, remember bananas had such a hard, hard sell in a potassium diet, but they have fiber, they have carbs. They're not as bad as you think. And of course, all meats and don't forget processed meats. What about low levels? Oh my gosh, grains that have white flour. Don't your patients just even look on YouTube and see they shouldn't be eating white things. But cauliflower is, can be higher in potassium, but not that high. Non-dairy creamer, drink mixes. You're limiting your patient's coffee to a cup a day, eight ounces a day. And what about chocolate? Chocolate's considered a high potassium food. One and a half to two ounces of chocolate has more than 200 milligrams of potassium. You better not talk to me about that. Anyway, these are some of the fruits, vegetables, and the proteins are listed here. And remember again, everything in moderation. Cheese, I do wanna point out the hard cheeses can be a problem, cottage cheese, but hard cheeses are much are worse than these softer cheeses. Now let's talk a little bit about what we can offer Jan. We can offer her cation exchangers. They were mentioned earlier, I mean, Dr. Um, both of Biff and George mentioned pteromere that they studied non-absorbable organic polymer binds potassium in the colon in exchange <laughs> for calcium. But what's the most common side effect? Constipation or hypomagnesemia with the highest doses. But when we talk about hypomagnesemia, I wanna remind those on, on this call that if a patient is, has diabetes, they tend to have a low magnesium to begin with. So it is something that you wanna pay attention to when you're recommending a low potassium diet, you're also recommending a lower magnesium diet. This pteromere is clinically important, very useful medication studied over a year, but it is also a binder of Cipro, metformin, and thyroxin. And I would caution you that when you use any of these cation exchangers, you wanna make sure that two to three hours away from medications that could be affected by pH or that you have a, you really want to be working. Sodium zirconium cyclosilicate, what we call otherwise SZC is what it was referred to earlier in this program. Inorganic non-absorbable compound, which exchanges both sodium and hydrogen for potassium in the intestine. So let's think about it. If it's exchanging sodium, what do you think the side effect is? Edema, edema was more common in patients with heart failure with the 10 and 15 milligram dose, but not a tremendously high, less than 8 8%, 6% was what they saw, 4%, 5% in the five milligram dose. And the steepest decline in potassium reduction was within the first four hours of therapy. But both of these medications are not indicated in emergency management of potassium. That is not part of their label. Now we're gonna mention kaoxylate, otherwise known lovingly in the past as sodium polystyrene sulfonate, SPS. Otherwise, if you've ever never tasted it, I would recommend doing that so that you can see how horrible it tastes. It's not recommended. It's probably gonna be out of production soon because of these really highly effective cation exchangers. And it's been linked to serious side effects such as intestinal necrosis, particularly when given in an enema form. Again, reminding you, reminding Jan, that a Mediterranean DASH diet is proven to extend longevity, reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease, diabetes, hypertension, cancer, other chronic diseases of aging, and can help with weight management. So what are we gonna do with Jan? Well, after shared decision-making, she's eliminated dry fruit, veggie meat substitutes, and those juices that she just loves to have in the morning. And she's instituted a label watch and leaching while maintaining a balanced diet. She continues on her ACE and ARB, but she is gonna avoid those non-steroidals. 
She is still on the, she's been started on the SZC, controlled on five grams twice a day, following up regularly. I'm going to be checking her potassium every month to six weeks. She is reporting to report any increased fatigue, skeletal or cardiac symptoms. And I do want to mention that I did urge her to increase her exercise to daily walking to build up muscle mass and minimize insulin resistance. But I want to remind you that if she does do some sort of very aggressive exercise, that is known to increase her potassium. So I have, when we talk about this variation throughout the day, we want her to be in better shape before she even thinks about this. These are just a few timeless George pearls, as I'll refer to this, as they came from one of the articles that he wrote. And stage three or higher CKD affects potassium handling, so watch it. It's related to a, to a decreased EGFR, presence of diabetic kidney disease in older age. Best predictor of hyperkalemia risk is an EGFR less than 45 and a serum potassium greater than 4.5. And my vote is I'd rather die of the higher potassium than the lower potassium. All patients in these groups should have appropriate education. And if you have to, you can stop the RASI, but make sure that you have a really good reason and that you have tried to include cation exchange resins and not, not, not avoided them because you're not used to them. Maybe correct acidosis, maybe increase the loop of diuretics, but not take away therapies that are pillars in care. So with that, I'm gonna turn this back to George and open it up for questions. Very nice, very nice, Pam. Thank you very much. You've made some very important points here. I think the audience now appreciates because Pam did such an excellent job thorough job of going through what a low potassium diet is. I can tell you in the patients that I've counseled on low potassium diets, the best case scenario, I've gone one month, patient's gone one month. There's slow recidivism as you go. So just give it up. I, I just immediately, <laughs> I mean, I educate them. I educate them on the really high K foods and say, look, just stay away from these things. And luckily, sometimes they don't like them, so it's not an issue. But you're not going to manipulate their diet in a dramatic way. So they need the counseling, and Pam did a brilliant job of going through that. But get the SCC out and go from there. Now, I will say, I will say, in the clinical trials that we did, we never gave it twice a day. It was always a I know that. And, and so I just want to make the point that for the audience that once a day is fine, and it really should not be a problem. Edema is a dose-dependent thing. So you're right about that. Um, now, the question I have is, and I'm going to ask both of you this, looking at, the, at this case, the first thing I would have done before I did anything else is I would have gotten rid of hydrochlorothiazide and I would have used chlorothalidone as the substitute because that is going to dump more potassium than hydrochlorothiazide, and you probably get better blood pressure control um, if you need I think it. that's brilliant. I, 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 want, I think that's a great point that you brought up, George. And this reminds would remind my audience to look at the CLICK trial. That's uh, really valuable in terms of we now know, and this is something that is that should have been thought of, because if you, you look at the CLICK trial, these are patients who had renal disease with hypertension and a more severe renal disease than this patient probably has, right. but they were able to get away with 12.5 of the chlorothalidone three times a week. And I didn't feel that we had the time to educate about the click trial, but because George mentioned it, because he's such a good teacher, you now know that you might want to Google click trial 
and you'll know what we're talking about and know that you can use chlorothaladone, which is not commonly used in practice at this point, but now we have a reason and safety that we can use it at in a small clinical trial, relatively. I think that's the, the message I wanted to make is not push the click trial so much. I didn't do the click trial. It was done by Rajiv Agarwal, a good friend of mine. It's in the New England Journal, if you want to go read it recently. But I think the point is that if you know your diuretics well, and, and as Biff pointed out, if you're going to use furosemide, you've got to use it twice a day. You can't use it once a day. It's not going to have the impact because it's short acting. So you really need to know what you're using to maximize your benefit before you go to the uh, binders. But the binders are there and they're relatively easy to get in with. I mean, and we don't have a big problem in Chicago at least, but I think you need to be aware that they're there and um, use them. Are there any final points you wanna make Biff before we go uh, leave the, the session? <coughs> I would... Just uh, another another point about the case that Pam brought up. Uh, another reason to discontinue that NSAID, by the way, beyond the hyperkalemia, is it may have been making the patient's blood pressure worse and uh, make them a little bit retractable. Because obviously, prostaglandins are normally naturetic within the kidney. You knock those out, you get excessive salt retention. Yep. Yes, can you take a second and tell us a little bit about magnesium and how you treat the magnesium, how you prevent the hypermagnesemia in your practice? He gives it enough till he gets diarrhea, and then he stops. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, uh, 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 first of all, I mean, don't forget about the mag foods. They're primarily plants and meats and nuts. But, uh, you know, uh, I, uh, mag gluconate or mag oxide, yeah, we always get a little concerned about diarrhea, but to be honest with you, if you start low dose and just kind of titrate up, you can get uh, good response. I have found with that. But Me you too. know, you raised the you raised an excellent point, and and I think the audience needs to be aware of it. The what I call high quality nuts, so almonds and and walnuts and things like that, they have a lot more magnesium. <laughs> than peanuts and stuff like that. And I, that's good another point. very good source. All right, very good. Well, look, we're at the last minute here of the session. Thank you very much to both of you for being here tonight. And thank you very much for your information. I think we disseminated a lot of very uh, useful information that hopefully the audience can use. And uh, hopefully they learn something from that. And so on behalf of myself and the sponsors and everybody, thank you very much.